0: Welcome to this New Year's edition of Nightlight 2013. I'm not speaking to you in 2013. I've previously told you that uh, the final three recordings that we offer for November, December, and January are all done in November, so as to not overload uh, our our sound people uh, with the burden of trying to get everything done in the middle of their holidays. And so I'm speaking to you right after the election period in late November or mid-November. And I want to speak, obviously, to that subject. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, Peter says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let them not be ashamed, but let them glorify God that they bear his name. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin with us, what shall the end be of those who reject the gospel of God? This is a fairly familiar scripture to many of you, but there's some things about it that maybe we're not, we're not aware of. First of all, Peter's not using the term Christian the way we use it. The, the term is only mentioned three times in the entire New Testament, and it was because it had become common for non-Christians to use the term Christian as a pejorative, mocking uh, name. And so what Peter's referring to here is, if, if I could paraphrase it, I know some of you are being mistreated and the culture is turning on you and they're using a term to mock you. That term is Christian. Don't be ashamed of it. Glorify God in the fact that you bear His name, even though it's being spoken over you as a mockery. Why? Well, because the time has now come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Sometimes we quote that line incorrectly. We say, you know, that judgment begins at the house of God. Well, judgment does begin at the house of God, but that's not what Peter's saying. He's saying, listen, I'm speaking a specific word to you as Christians, recognizing that the term Christian for you and your generation is a mockery, which means you're beginning to be persecuted. And I'm telling you not to be ashamed of that, but glorify God in the wearing of that name. Why? Because you're now entering a time of judgment that must begin. This judgment is something that is inevitable, irrevocable, unavoidable, and you must be willing to enter it, and it must begin, but it also must begin at the house of God. Why? Well, the word judgment here is krima in Greek. It's a specific word that refers to. A, a, a furnace uh, that separates the, the gold from uh, the alloy that uh, that proves what is true versus what is false. It's used in a lot of different contexts. In the Greek language, it, it can refer to a, a decree. It can refer to a judgment in a courtroom. But the idea that's being addressed here in this context by Peter is that there is a time that is set apart by God and appointed and must come to pass in which all things begin to be set in their proper place. That's part of what judgment is. Uh, It's setting things in their right order. And so therefore, when it comes to proving what is real versus what is not real in a sham culture where idols are being exposed for what they are, Before the judgment falls on the idols, that testing judgment must first fall on those who are not idolaters but who worship the true and the living God. So as to prove to that culture by demonstration what is real, what is not real, and to prove first among the believers what is real versus what is not real. So this is related to the the shaking that Hebrews chapter 12 refers to, where everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that that which cannot be shaken may be manifested for what it really is. Now, many intercessors have been in prayer for years for a cleansing of secret sin and an awakening to righteousness, not in the culture in general, but they've been praying for that in the church Judgment begins at the house of God. Judgment does not mean destruction in this context, but it means to put right that which is wrong, so a corrective and cleansing judgment on the house of God could result in the people of God becoming who we are supposed to be, thus becoming salt and light and therefore avoiding a greater judgment, a more traumatic one, on the whole general culture. When Obama was elected in 2008, the focus of many Christians turned toward praying against his onerous and destructive policies. A sense of great urgency to stop the headlong movement over the moral and economic cliff turned the prayer focus of many toward simply seeing someone, anyone, almost anyone, to replace Obama in the 2012 elections. From a mere human political focus, millions of dollars and work hours were spent towards that goal. After all that labor and sacrifice, where did it get? It ended exactly like it began, maybe a little worse. With Obama in the White House, a leftist-controlled Senate, and a weak and compromising Republican House. Pundits wondered out loud what happened politically. Christians wondered out loud, where was God? Why did he not respond after so many strong appeals, huge gatherings, and awakened patriotism? Why didn't just the sheer momentum of common sense prevail? Well, there were all kinds of reasons offered. The most ludicrous one has become also the most often quoted one that at the last minute, Hurricane Sandy provided Obama a chance to show himself presidential, and that turned the tide back in his favor. Now, if that was true, and I don't know how you would measure that to find out if it's really true, but if it is true, then it would mean that the clear-minded thinking of reasoning people who have observed, and some personally suffered through, the worst presidency in history suddenly saw Obama posing in front of cameras for photo ops in the storm region and magically all their former accumulated understanding of his leftist ideologies, his infamous commitment to the killing of babies, his gay rights and same-sex marriage activism, his dishonor of our military, his betrayal and murder of our people in Libya, his attack on the freedom of religion, his hatred of Israel, and his affinity for radical Muslim causes, his rapid and increasing draining of our economy, giving aid and support to our enemies, all this understanding is suddenly displaced magically by the fairy dust of TV photojournalism. No. That's not what happened. What happened to cause 6.4 million self proclaimed Christians to vote back into office the most anti Christian president in history? It was not fairy dust, and it sure was not a logical reconsideration brought on by seeing him parade around New Jersey with fawning Governor Christie. It was divine judgment. A spirit of utter stupidity seemed to descend on this nation. I do not use the word stupid as a vain pejorative. I mean it literally, a spiritual stupor, as judgment from God has been given to a people who no longer want truth. Pharaoh of Egypt withstood Moses and repeatedly hardened his heart against the word of God. At a certain point in that scenario, God began to harden Pharaoh's heart himself. It might be paraphrased to say, Okay, Pharaoh, I hear you. You want to willfully withstand me? Well, I will actually strengthen you in that resolve. You harden your heart? I will harden you even more than you have hardened yourself, and you will be locked into your willful chosen path. Those who will not be my servants will become my tools. Thy will be done. So, in a similar way, the sick and ever sicker Christian culture of America, and I'm addressing Christian culture, not non-believers who understandably embrace the concepts of the Democratic Party, but the Christian culture is full of such muddy mixtures, both theological and moral, has therefore lost its ability to discern. Replacing the message and life of the cross with therapeutic feel-goodisms. Finding a million ways to compromise with evil in the name of getting along. Or even worse, not even thinking there's any conflict to compromise over. This pseudo-Christian culture has continually chosen to ignore the Word of God, if not openly resist it. So on election day, God said to us what he said to Pharaoh. Fine. You choose this path, so I will strengthen you in your choice. I will allow the human stupidity you chose to become a spiritual force of stupidity that will take you over. You who think you can name my name and then willfully choose to support the party that officially spoke with a loud voice to remove me from among them, who celebrate the murder of babies as the foremost plank of their platform that officially rape the minds and souls of your school children, who fully intend and have already begun to actually teach sexual perversions and sins of all kinds to them in the name of diversity and sex education, who fund Planned Parenthood, an engine of destruction and murder that has killed more black children than all of the uh, machinations of uh, Confederate pro-slavery activity could have done, put together, which arrogantly drive the nation to the unprecedented redefinition of marriage as being that between two genders, who entrench radical atheist ideologues within the government illegally, secretly, covertly the public and official blaspheming of my name, the immoral spending of money you don't have to feed your continual lust for more at the expense of others, and the betrayal of your allies around the world, including Israel, while bowing to and supporting evil Islamic dictators who torture maim and murder, who treat women like cattle, and who seek the annihilation of my people Israel, then so be it. Your will be done. I'll help you now towards your goal, Of self destruction. So, a huge number of Christians restored to power the party that stands against everything they claim as Christians to believe and hold dear. We are under a severe divine chastisement, heading towards a more severe judgment, ending in wrath. I've said for four years, Obama is our Nebuchadnezzar. I mean by that, that the pagan Babylonian has given, uh, been given power by God to send us into exile in our own land. The first time he was elected, the country was basking in the wonderment of a completely fabricated fantasy energized by a fawning, idolatrous, pseudo-journalistic news media. Many claimed they wanted to, quote, make history by helping vote into office the first black president, as if that was some valid criteria for voting for a leftist, radical, anti-Christian baby-murdering zealot, whom my black son refers to not as black, but he's red. It never seemed to occur to these racially motivated voters that the many outstanding black leaders already in this country who were evidently uh, strong enough and acceptable enough and uh, beloved enough to rise to places like the Supreme Court or the Office of Secretary of State, proving that a black man or a woman could rise to these heights and successfully overcome any possible remaining overt racism that should stand in their way, you would think that they would be evidence enough. But no, you see, no black person who believes in God, supports the Constitution, and embraces a biblical worldview is considered by leftist ideologues to be genuinely black. No, they are all Uncle Toms who compromised with Whitey to get where they are. So the only way you can be black is to really be red. Only a leftist, godless supporter of all things unchristian and un-American is a real black candidate. So the drinkers of the political Kool-Aid wanted to make history. Well, they made history, all right. And four years later, as many with great buyer's remorse, hoped for change again and assumed that the fairy dust of 2008 had worn off and adult thinking had been restored, found that they were disappointed again. In place of the fairy dust has come a demonic spiritual stronghold of self-deception rooted in human rebellion. The Laodicean condition of most American Christianity is exemplified by the following commonly heard statements, like, We should keep our religion and our politics separate. Why do you make everything revolve around abortion? Or, why do you make everything revolve around homosexuality? Well, let's examine These questions, just briefly. Keep politics and religion separate. Hmm. What that really means is, when the demands are great, politically, for me to take a stand on an issue that might cost me popularity or even freedom, I will conveniently affirm the political correct position and deny my faith. That means, then, that I am a slave of the political and really have no faith. Or to say it more clearly, I'm a Christian in name only. Why I ultimately do what I do is because I am what I am. Claiming I am keeping my politics and my religion separate really just means I'm keeping God out of my real-life decisions. I never allow my relationship to God and His Word to unduly influence my real-life decisions or actions. I keep religion and politics conveniently separated from each other, so I never have to obey God in the face of social pressure to compromise with evil. How convenient for hell. Then number two, you often hear this one. Why do you make abortion or homosexuality the the litmus test. There's there's more issues at stake than just those two. In fact, I, I, I it hurts me to say this because I, I love and respect the man who I'm quoting, and I won't name him. But a very well known Christian speaker made the statement in one of his articles not, not too long ago that he believed that his time wore on and uh, Uh, the country spiritually matured that we would reach a place where we recognize that abortion and homosexuality were not only not worthy of the first place concerns that Christians had given it, but we'll find that they are way down the list in uh, uh, anybody's list of vital subjects that need attention. And of course the other subjects that deserve first place were things like global warming, world hunger, and the slave trade. Now, the mindset is, therefore, among the spiritual elite and, sadly, dribbling down to the masses of Christians that there are so much more important social issues to address than the killing of the unborn or sexual morality and the sanctity of marriage and the survival of the family, like global warming or world hunger or the slave trade, that uh, maybe we're learning our lesson. Now, with the exception of global warming, which I think is just a ruse to provide the left platform to take over a nation's industries, I do not mean to diminish the real concerns we should have for caring for the earth or other social battles that we need to fight. But those are all secondary to the image of God, the reverence we hold towards the most basic foundational realities of being human, marriage and its offspring, because these both Are the image of God in the earth. To have to defend our defense of these two as the most important issues of our generation or any generation just shows how sick we've become. But we are an idolatrous, materialistic, atheistic Christian culture now. Our God, little g, is created in our image rather than the other way around. We are far more concerned with temporal issues than eternal ones. That's a sad fact that Christians for far too many years got so wrapped up in, quote, eternal issues that we ignored our responsibilities to the earth. That has been corrected and is being corrected more and more every day. Many parts of the body of Christ have awakened to our responsibility to properly steward the earth or to help the true poor or to fight social evils on a worldwide scale like the slave trade. Certainly, certainly those are vital and important issues. But they cannot possibly be the vital or important issue if the image of God himself is being castigated and disfigured, and marriage is being dishonored, so that the image of God is no longer seen in the God-instituted relationship between a man and a woman in covenant relationship, which produces the offspring that then abortion also destroys. God himself has been rejected, and therefore we have set up a cardboard facsimile, a cultural mush-God it becomes then easy to tip the hat to the mushy, mush God and ignore the commands of the real God, the great and terrible God, to whom all creation will give account. So his revelation of reality upon which we then build a same a sane civilization can just begin to be dismantled and reconstructed in our image, in our likeness. First, children become fetal tissue, then in less than a generation, marriage becomes also just tissue all of humanity is now set up for redefinition we didn't just vote for a godless leftist government we also voted for things like the legalization of hallucinogenic drugs doctor assisted suicide which just means being able to get rid of the old tissue just as easily as we've been getting rid of the fetal tissue In a sane world, we would be so horrified at the state of these issues that nothing would stop us from taking redemptive action when and wherever necessary to rebuke any force that would seek to undermine these basic human common sense realities. That the image of God is revealed on earth through the marriage union of male and female and that the children that come from that union are sacred. Now, the person who simply makes the common sense statement that they, quote, would never support a pro-abortion politician, no matter what their other positions were, end quote, is treated as an extremist, a fanatic, a one-issue person. Now, if I'm about to get on an airplane, and the airplane has everything in it working perfectly, it just has one problem. There's a bomb on the plane set to go off. I would become a one-issue flyer. But see, we don't believe that there is any terrible ramifications awaiting us for the shedding of innocent blood. We do not believe that there are some evils so abominable that they constitute a single issue, an unbridgeable gap. Paganism is defined by basically these two issues. How you relate to sex and how you relate to blood, children, death, murder. This is the whole, whole history of paganism. So to do away with God leaves only one direction for a culture to go and that's back to bloodlust. Paganism. The shedding of innocent blood will drive a people off the land they have polluted. Whether they are believers in Yahweh or not is not the issue. The principle in the spirit realm is that the shedding of innocent blood will destroy them. Second Kings 24 verse 4. They filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and Yahweh refused to forgive this. Numbers 35.33 You shall not pollute the land by shedding blood. The land cannot be cleansed of the blood except by the blood of those who shed it. Abraham Lincoln stated in 1851 that the blood of slaves crying out from the ground would be answered by the blood of the sons of the North and the South. So it was. What will requite the blood of millions and millions of children murdered, in this country and throughout the West. It seems evident to me that the horrible increase in the spirit of murder, not only in the act itself of taking a life of another, but in the increasing brutality, capriciousness, and at times demonically perverse nature of the murder, is a direct result of millions of slaughtered children crying out from the ground. As one intercessor said to me recently, do we really think 40 days of prayer and fasting will be all it takes to expunge the blood of 40 years of murdered children? We can say in response to that statement that, yes, even 40 minutes of genuine, deep, heartfelt repentance, 40 seconds, because time is not the issue, but the quality of the repentance would be enough to receive the cleansing power of God's grace provided by the shed blood of his Son, whose blood has the power to cleanse all sin instantly. But my intercessor friend was not denying that truth. She was pointing out the possibility that even in our gatherings to pray for the country, there can be often and has been a lightness of attitude, a tendency to think in terms of us who are right with God versus them who are sinful causes of our trouble. And most dangerous of all, a lack of understanding of the depth of the levels of the human soul and the true horror of our national sins. Not only practiced for the last generation, but done so with an arrogance that if put into words would say, we are America, we can survive anything, we can do whatever we want. It's our right. God has no say anywhere except where we give him permission to speak. He has no place except the place we allow him by our law. When some protest with the question, who speaks for God, how do we know your position on abortion or sex or anything else is truly God's position? Who are you or who is anyone to presume to tell the whole nation how they must behave or what they must obey? I reply, fair enough. I agree, if an Islamic imam stood to try to extend Sharia law over America, as they are doing, it would be certainly right to knock him off his pedestal. And yet, isn't it ironic, the one religious voice that is now allowed to pontificate and demand honor and even obedience is that very evil false religion. While the word of the living God is mocked and rejected, Islam is given free reign in every area of American life that it has demanded that platform. Those who loudly proclaim their freedom from God mindlessly bow to every whim of Islamic political demand to the point that on the very location of ground zero, an Islamic mosque is rising all in the name of tolerance and respect, with no respect for the evil their religion perpetrated there, and with the total opposite of any respect for the families and loved ones left behind. The most complete example of stupidity as a divine judgment is being enshrined on the very spot where the blood of the 9-11 victims cry out. It is part of the judgment of stupidity upon us. On the one hand, they affirm abortion and homosexuality politically. On the other, they bow to Islam, which claims theologically to resist and punish these two sins. The two ideologically cannot coexist, but the fact is, like the Herodians and the Pharisees who hated each other but hated Jesus more, they found common ground in hating Jesus. So it is with these two forces. Though they are absolutely irreconcilably at odds with each other, they hate Christians more, and they will find common ground against the people of God, at least temporarily. Because the same demonic spirit is behind both forces, and therefore politically they can endure each other in order to seek the same target, silencing the people of God and overthrowing the nation. So I hear the protest that in a free society no one can demand that their view of God be the one everyone bows to. I understand that. This is a founding principle of this nation that has saved us from both political and religious tyranny for over 200 years. But the force that maintained that proper separation of church and state was not a political force. It was the overarching fear of God that permeated the overall culture and produced a humanity that respectfully sought the common good for all. In other words, it was the presence of God in his prevenient grace that produced and maintained a culture that allowed freedom of thought, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, and freedom of divergence. Now we are demanding that that real God but out shut up get out of the way so here's the larger issue god is big enough to speak for himself the god who is there the god who is not silent not the mush god of popular nationalistic religion not not the little g god made in our image and likeness no the real one, the one that truly exists, the one who has shaped and invaded history, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who came to the earth through the womb of a woman who walked and talked with us, died a sacrificial death on our behalf, rose from the dead, and is coming back to judge the earth. He is himself coming now to bring his corrective judgment first to his people and then to the nation and then to the nations of the earth. Be wary of even the most subtle thought that might pass through your mind that suggests that God has no place in this or that arena of national life. Oh, it's there, believe me. It's so commonly practiced in this country now that even awake Christians pause before doing anything or saying anything that might desecrate the sacred cow of separation of church and state. I'm not talking about Christians who rudely and arrogantly and in self-will try to impose their particular point of view on someone and therefore brings righteous uh, rejection to themselves by behaving in an ungodly and unloving and unbecoming way. I'm talking about just simply being who you are out in the culture and interacting with people. Beware that you don't allow yourself subtly, slowly, and surely to become enslaved to a mindset of political correctness that is the natural air of the culture now, because it is not our natural air and shall never be. They might not even fully allow the thought to take form enough to put it in words, but it goes something like, oh, I better be careful. God doesn't have permission in our country to address this particular arena. This has been made off limits to him. I'm sure he obeys the rules. We are about to hear him speak for himself in every arena he chooses. Those who fear him and seek to honor him will hear and recognize his voice. Those who refuse will say it thundered. When the judgments begin to manifest, we will not need to wonder who has the right to speak for God in a free country. God will speak for himself with no apologies and without anyone's permission. The great God The majesty that holds our very breath in his merciful hand will not send a delegation to ask if he can have an audience with the American people. It will be nothing short of mercy that he would interrupt our deception with such a level of harsh reality as I'm describing. But it is our only hope. But is it real hope? Yes, it is. Isaiah tells us, quote, When the judgments of God are in the earth, the people learn righteousness. The word judgment, as I've previously stated, does not mean destruction necessarily. That's wrath. Even wrath has a degree of corrective mercy in it before it reaches the ultimate wrath, described in Revelation 15. But judgment refers to putting right that which is wrong. To judge is to correct, adjust, salvage, restore. There's great hope in judgment. God's purposes are redemptive. Our condition in this country, our spiritual condition, manifested in materialistic entertainment-soaked trivia-focused foolishness, is an opposition to redemption. No, it's not mere ignorant of redemption. It's a weapon against redemption. For it keeps God's people shallow, silly, and easily seduced. So God is setting in motion redemptive judgments as he has done throughout history. Those various judgments will be in different locations and of varying degrees of severity. Only God knows how that will all unfold. But for each of us, wherever we are, if we humble our hearts before him and seek his face, he will maintain us and even prosper us. Nahum chapter 1 verse 3 says, The Lord is slow to anger. And great in power. And will not leave the guilty unpunished. Verse 7 says, The Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows how to care for those who trust in him. If the events of the past few months have been shaking to you, then give thanks to God for that. We've said over and over because of scriptures that say over and over that the shaking comes only to free us from what is shakable so that that which cannot be shaken may remain steady and we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. If our confidence in things that once comforted us and now cannot comfort us has been shaken, then give thanks to God for that new understanding that you have been resting in an insecure, unreal hope If your security is being shaken so that you have to re-examine your relationship to God and your real trust relationship with him, that's a good thing. It's a blessed thing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Why? Because they're awake and aware and understand the great need and will cry out to God from a place of humility rather than remaining stupidly asleep in a time of impending danger. Psalm 33 verses 8 through 22. Listen to this. It's very comforting, very, very helpful. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the heathen to nothing eventually. He makes the devices of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The thoughts of his heart are to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looked from heaven and he beheld all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation he looked upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioned their hearts alike. He considered all their works. There is no king saved by the multitude of a host. A mighty man is not delivered by much military strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety, neither shall he be delivered uh, by his strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon those that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in you. So what do we do now? Where are we? And what's, what's our next step? I referred to Obama as our Nebuchadnezzar, who, at the time of his reign, overthrew the system of Judah's lifestyle and drove them into exile. Truly serious disciples of Jesus are now, more than ever, the minority in this country. We have been for some time in that place, but our residual influence on culture remained, and the culture lived off the borrowed capital of God's former blessings on a formerly god-fearing america but that capital is shrinking and as the capital shrinks all of the influences of the world the flesh and the devil gain ascendancy and as the people of god diminish in influence and conviction we allowed our salt to become tasteless and our light to go dim as we slowly lost our fire and ever so slowly and unconsciously took on more and more of the world's way of thinking, demonstrated in our refusal to keep our marriage covenants in our, del- our delving into various sexual sins and all the other immoralities that began to show up in Christian culture from the pulpit right down to the pew, we awoke too late to find that our nation has been cut almost perfectly in half with the godless in ascendancy the other half, if you want to call them red states, I guess, even the red states are not the direct opposite of the godless, but are a sad mixture of various levels of faith or no faith. Only God knows how many of the so-called red states are his. Not that God looks at the nation through red states and blue states. He has people in all states, But whether you live in a red state or a blue state, if you are a serious disciple of the Lord Jesus, you are in the minority in either of those states. So, when this was true of Judah, when Judah was in exile under the will of God as a corrective judgment, God told them through Jeremiah how to live in exile. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then the letter begins, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for that city, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. Notice that phrase. Don't listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. Uh, Just a slight digression here. One of the characteristics of the, the days of the prophets that you see repeated in various places is that, and Jeremiah says it most, prof, most uh, pronouncedly, the, from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely and the people like it that way. Then it goes on, they are prophesying lies to you in my name. I never sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Now, by the way, this next verse, quite often you hear it quoted completely taken out of context. Here's the context. Seventy years of corrective judgment is upon you in order to deliver you from your own rebellious, self-destructive ways. But after that time of correction and discipline and cleansing, I know the thoughts I have for you or think towards you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me, and you will find me when you seek for me with all your heart. And then I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now, uh, I recognize that the prophetic scheme that the majority of evangelical Christians tend to follow is one of a uh, an end-time rapture uh, where the, the church is taken out before the tribulation. I, re, I respect that point of view. I don't agree with it. I would be happy to be wrong about it. But the reason that I mention it here and, and bring it to your attention is many people hearing what I'm saying now will be thinking, well, we'll, we'll probably get raptured before that. Uh, maybe, maybe not. But let me tell you, let me tell you this. Whenever the church has assumed that its prophetic schemes are correct and therefore disregarded the word of the Lord for them in the era in which they live, like like so much of the Chinese church did in the 1930s under the influence of British and American missionaries who told them the same thing, that they would be raptured before anything bad would happen, and then Mao Zedong uh, killed so many, you need to be aware that if we are taken out, blessed be the name of the Lord. If we are not taken out, blessed be the name of the Lord. But you must take stock of where you are in your own personal life and in your relationship with the Lord and with other people and prepare yourself for to possibly live through a period that the pre-trib rapture scenario doesn't have on its charts. A period where American Christianity must walk through a similar period of, of uh, confrontation with evil that other parts of the world have walked through. Uh, and the purpose for this is the same as that which sent Judah into exile. A purging, a cleansing, a cleansing, a separation of the gold from the, the, the trash alloy. And so uh, there are some some aspects of life under Jeremiah 29 that I want us to examine in regard to us. First of all, their posture in exile was to occupy where they were, bloom where they were planted, so to speak. Build, plant, marry, raise children in that place. Uh, In the economic shaking that's coming, there will be, uh, as I've said this repeatedly, there will be various levels of judgments taking place in various parts of the country on different levels at different times. Some places will seem protected. Other places will seem bombarded. Some places will seem prosperous. Other places will be in a dearth. Uh, only God knows all, all the answers to that. But in the process of this, you are to act and move forward, uh, living and expecting God to uh, to guide you through the, the process. If you're a businessman, uh, continue to do your business. Whatever you're called to do, do it with all your might. You're going to be doing it against a government that wants to uh, confiscate all of your property. But uh, you're not the first people who've ever lived under that kind of duress and only God uh, can uh, show you what to do but he can prosper you in the face of that. Second, they are to pray for the prosperity of the city in which they live so that the city will prosper and they will prosper with it. This implies that the presence of God's people, even in exile, are salt and light and are a uh, a conduit for the mercy of God to pour even into pagan situations. And so if the people of God begin to take their rightful place in intercession and uh, priestly prayer ministry for the city in which they live, the area in which they live, the circumstances in which they find themselves— God will manifest prosperity even in the midst of exile. Number three, they're not to believe the false prophets who tell them there is no judgment from God in this and that they will all be back in their original circumstances very soon and everything will be great. No, it will be 70 years according to the number of Sabbaths that had been desecrated. Uh, If you read in other places in Jeremiah, it explains that the the reason seventy years of exile was proclaimed is because that that matched the seventy uh, sabbaths that had been desecrated, uh, and that's a whole another teaching in itself. But what it what it basically revol- re- revolves around is their refusal to honor God manifested itself in their refusal to keep the Sabbath, which was the the place where the culture departed from. Uh, pagan culture, and sanctified themselves to the Lord, sanctified time, laid aside work, which was a way of saying we trust God, not the labor of our own hands. And on the Sabbath, in the Sabbath, uh, they, they maintained their family sanctity. They invoked the presence of the Lord in their home. That was all gone as the people... Uh, ate and drank and prospered and did their business seven days a week and fornicated and broke their marriage vows and worshipped false idols and bowed to materialism. So please don't get, I know nobody in this audience is mistaking this as some kind of silly, you didn't keep one of the rules and so you're in trouble, that's that's as far from the spirit of this as you can get. It's not a matter of, well, we didn't keep the Sabbath, so we're in exile. No, it's that we refused to acknowledge what the Sabbath represents in all of its many aspects. And the results of that has been the disintegration of the culture which invited Nebuchadnezzar in and brought this upon us, just like us right now. Finally, God's intention in this judgment is so that the people will understand his desire and purpose for them, which is ultimately for their good to give them a blessed future and a hope. So when the judgment is imposed, they will seek him and they will find him when they finally begin to search for him with an undivided heart, with all their heart, and then he promises to be found of them. Uh, The undivided heart is a a theme we've studied uh, in detail in a series, six-hour series, called Integrity of Heart, if you're interested in pursuing that more. But the whole issue of an undivided heart uh, has to do with the Holy Spirit helping us see how divided our hearts are. And when he does that through circumstances in our private lives or if we don't pay attention there the increase of pressure through circumstances in the whole culture we begin to find out amazed uh, to our amazement just how unfaithful unresponsive and disobedient we've been in our relationship to god we have we have treated it like a legal document that sits on a shelf and is therefore makes us secure uh, because after all, we're born again. Uh, After all, we, you know, you you name whatever you want to name. Israel said, we're Israel and that's all we need. And they found out that because they were Israel, the judgment on them was much more severe than it would have been had they been pagans because by claiming to have a relationship with God and yet not relating to him as God, it brought a more severe judgment. So be careful when we claim we are the people of God. We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. We're this. We're that. Because to the degree we are those things only in position and yet, are not walking in those relationships in reality, to that degree, the judgment will be even more severe. So how do we apply this to ourselves uh, in the days that we're about to enter into? Well, we're to humble ourselves under this divine judgment that has descended upon us. Um, It's a very serious thing to try to throw off the yoke that God has placed and then try to reclaim your rightful position as God's, God's people and claim your prosperity and your blessings when God has said, nope, those days are not present right now. What's present right now is my correction. If you don't bow to that correction, then it's going to get more severe. We bow to God's judgment that has allowed the evil and we receive the correction. Number two, we are to live where we're planted and move forward in whatever endeavor he's given us to do, even under that corrective yoke, knowing that God's purposes through his people will continue and may even become more, well, I won't say may, I I, I perfectly expect his purposes to be more clearly demonstrated <clears throat> excuse me because he's going to have a more uh, obedient and responsive and spiritually sensitive people through which to move uh for instance many many and i hate always saying this because i know it sounds critical i don't mean it to be condescending and critical but there is coming uh A cleansing of the whole church system that will purge away a lot of things that have been established on wrong motives and with wrong desires. Um, Many, many religious idols will fall. I believe that the big megachurch movement in America is coming to an end. And in the place of it will arise congregations, bodies of believers, some small, some large. There's nothing wrong with large congregations for heaven's sakes. We need large congregations because large congregations have the pooling of resources that can get a lot more accomplished on a large scale. But on the other hand, smaller gatherings of people where family, spiritual family life is really truly operating, uh, So that the gifts and powers of the Spirit and the ministry of the Spirit and the emotional and spiritual support that people need, especially in a time of meltdown socially, uh, the healing of family relationships, the strengthening of marriage bonds, and the purging of sexual sin, uh, which takes place much more powerfully in smaller gatherings of believers where there is a real true family heart-to-heart bonding that holds people together and helps them stay uh, grounded in the Lord and in each other. You're going to see that begin to arise. Many, many of you who have been alone, uh, many people who listen to this message every month, uh, communicate to to me and Mary and talk about how how difficult it is because you you live in an area where there's lots of church activity. But you've tried to find connected, uh, a place to, to connect with that church activity. And okay, you finally go, quote, to church, but you, you've been better taught than to believe that you can just go to church. And that's enough. You're not supposed to go to church. You are to be the church. And in the American Christianized system that we have been inculturated in, there's not a lot of room to be the church, but there's about to be many, many opportunities for that to change. Uh, the 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 circumstances will be negative, but the results will be very positive. Uh, uh, I'll tell you, I've said it many times before, so forgive me if you've heard me say it a hundred times before, but as painful as this is all going to be economically and in other ways... I cannot think of anything more painful than for the culture to be allowed to go on the way it's been for the last 30 years with an ever-increasing materialism producing an ever-decreasing heart connection so that people have more and more and really emotionally and spiritually are poverty-stricken. The layout is sin, spirit. Rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing and yet do not know that we are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And so God in his great mercy is bringing the cleansing, purging uh, work to deal with that. Now, uh, in the time we have left, I've only got a few minutes and I've got way much more that I wanted to cover. So let me try to bring this to a close and we'll readdress it, Lord willing, in future times together. But... One of the most important things we must pray for is the grace to live in the opposite spirit of the world. Uh, o- Obama's Bible is Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals. If you want to understand what's happening, you don't need to go to uh, the news media who hadn't got a clue. Even Fox hadn't got a, gl- a clue. Uh, just Google. Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals and read them. and then you'll read the, uh, the agenda of the Obama administration and the Democratic Party. And one of the most important aspects of this is, of course, divide and conquer. Uh, Jesus said, "A house divided against itself cannot stand. Well we are now the ununited states of America the disunited states of America, and so an, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And w- we don't seek to to be peaceful in the sense of cooperating with evil, but we do seek with all of our hearts to be in the opposite spirit of Saul Alinsky's view, which is to turn race against race, to turn uh, class against class, to keep people at odds with each other on every level possible so that uh, disintegration brings chaos, because in chaos it's easier to manipulate and uh, bring about uh, government control uh, over people's private lives. You can stay free on the inside in the Spirit. It takes the grace of God. It takes prayer. It takes humility. It takes a willing heart, a servant's heart. But you ask the Lord for the power to live in the opposite spirit. So, you know, I've already had people say to me, you know, I've never thought of myself as racist, but I'm beginning to have temptations. And they are temptations, because I'll tell you, uh, you're not above being pulled in by the powers of darkness to all kinds of hateful thinking and behavior uh, that puts you in the same category as the thing you're hating and trying to resist, so you come at it in the opposite spirit, in a, a spirit of, of mercy, forgiveness, reconciliation, true peacemaking, not, not slovenly humanistic compromise, but true peacemaking. Ask the Lord when you finish listening to this message, ask him for the grace to begin to live in the opposite spirit, because that is the power that overcomes the world. Till next time.